Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Lightning Round Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Sisti and Jamie Hoyle. Go Chargers, go! Welcome back, everybody, to the Lightning Round Podcast. Jamie and Garrett back with you. This is part two of our Chargers possible head coaching candidates for 2021. If you have not, go back and listen to part one. We covered the other half of this list. We're going to get into the other half today. But if you missed it, you can't skip around. Go back and listen to those other ones because we're going to be having our top five. And some of those include some of the guys that were mentioned in the first podcast. So just go back, listen to part one, pause it right now, go do that, then come back and listen to part two. So on this episode of part two, we are going to be covering the 49ers defensive coordinator Robert Sala, the Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy. The Bills offensive coordinator, Brian Dable. We are going to talk about the rumors surrounding Urban Meyer. And there's also one other mystery candidate that's going to make one of our lists that is not on the list of candidates that are going to interview or have already interviewed with the Chargers. Also a guy that hasn't been rumored to the Chargers like Urban Meyer. So uh, we got a mystery candidate coming up. So Jamie, let's go ahead and start with Robert Sala. Are you ready? I am. All right, so Saul is probably the most fiery guy on this head coaching list. Uh, you can't watch a 49ers game without seeing Saul on the sidelines screaming and jumping around with either joy or anger, depending on what game. <laughs> and, and mostly both during each game. Uh, he was a defensive assistant at Michigan State, Central Michigan, and Georgia. Sala on the defensive side of the ball with the Texans, Seahawks, and Jags until becoming the defensive coordinator for the 49ers in 2017. Now, Sala runs a 4-3 under over hybrid, which has a cover three press defense. Sala's a blitzing technician. His calling card is those fire zone blitzes, which I absolutely love. It's a two under three deep hot blitz. Sala puts numbers on the running backside to overwhelm him in protection, forcing him to make a pick, which is something that I, I absolutely love. Basically, the D-line opens up a spot for the linebacker or the edge, and the free runners are coming at the quarterback on the running back side. The running back either has to go left or right, pick somebody, but the other guy's running free. So the way he designs blitzes is just artistic. I love it. Uh, what Sala does beyond that is electric, because once teams caught on to that fire zone alignments, he started to throw looks out that, that just kind of looked like they were the fires on blitzes without blitzing. And he would even give the illusion of a blitz overloading a right side and then just have them all drop back in coverage and then send a corner from the opposite side of that blitz. He's a very cat and mouse coordinator who is always looking to be aggr the aggressor, which I love. 
every week becomes harder and harder to predict what Salah's doing. Even though the 49ers didn't do very good and they didn't surpass their showing last year, the thing I love that Salah did in 2020 was they lost Nick Bosa and D. Ford, and Salah moved both the rookie Javon Kinlaw and Eric Armstead around the defensive line together which is something that we talk about all the time with Melvin Ingram and Joey Bosa. So rather than splitting them, he would just walk wherever Kinlaw was. Armstead was next to wherever Armstead was. Kinlaw was following him. So whether it's left side, right side, middle, it didn't matter. They were just side by side. So rather than having them on either side, it was let's create chaos in this one spot with these two players. So I love that he had that little matchup beater in – how long have we been able to say, like, put Joey Bosa and Ingram next to each other, would you? And Gus would never do it. Luckily, Gus is gone, so we don't have to see that. But uh, Sala was with the Seahawks when they won the Super Bowl, and he was with the 49ers when they went to the Super Bowl last year. So obviously has that experience. If there was one coach on this list that players will go to bat for, we kind of talked about how that was the case with Staley, Sala people absolutely love every player that's ever played with them. That's something that I kind of found interesting. Uh, another thing that's kind of plays in Sala's favor is he learned from Kyle Shanahan that Shanahan, he said Shanahan isn't just a good coach. He's a good play caller and it's his team that has one vision. So it's not about offense, defense, and special teams. All of them have the same exact vision and they, he's a leader of one. So he's said that's the thing that he's going to bring and that he tries to bring with defense and obviously something that he's going to do as a head coach. Uh, he's a natural born leader. Uh, love what he's going to do, being able to kind of equal all three of those phases together because if there's one team that struggles in one area and is bad in another and not very good in the other, it was the Chargers last year. So <laughs> to have all three working together, uh, got a lot. Well, maybe, maybe Lynn was doing that. He he was doing offense, defense, and special team just in they the all wrong suck direction. Together. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I got a this all wrong. <laughs> so you know, uh, players love Salah. They respect him. There's even rumors that players are willing to follow him wherever he goes. Uh, Richard Sherman is one of them. If they're if the 49ers were to cut him, Solomon Thomas is a guy that said he would follow Salah. So wherever he co- coaches in 2021, he'll have guys follow him. Uh, that obviously speaks to what a great leader of men he is. Uh, he's only 41, so on the younger younger side, he's energetic, creative. I love the success he's had, and I I know there's a lot of ties to Gus, and that that's a huge negative. I do think Sala surpasses Gus. Um, I really love what he does, and uh, I love the success he's had with the defense he's been he's been a part of. So I mentioned goosebumps earlier. I don't know if you came across this article, but there was a Monday morning quarterback article about Salah uh, talking about how uh, 9-11 shaped his life. Yes, and and I read it and I was going to read it, but I know how much it impacted you, so I want to leave it to you. Yeah, so I I love this article. Um, And, you know, you hear a lot of stories about how 9-11 affected people, and it affected all of us in some way or another. But... Long story short, his brother was in the South Tower. Robert Sala's brother was in the South Tower. This is a, a family of Lebanese descent. They, they're from Dearborn, Michigan. Um, very tight Muslim community that they live in. And his brother was in the South Tower when the North Tower was hit. And while his brother's boss was telling him to go back to work, he said, you know what? Something's not right. So he ran down, I think it was like 60 or 70 flights of stairs to get out of the South building. And he got out to the street just as the second building was hit. So 
they lost contact with him that day. They couldn't get a hold of him. Nobody knew what was going on. Robert was freaking out. Uh, the parents were freaking out. They finally got in touch with him. His brother survived. And later that year, Robert is watching the Patriots win their first Super Bowl with Tom Brady. And he is emotional, like an emotional wreck, basically, because he realizes that even though he's having all kinds of success working for Comerica Bank as a, a risk analyst, he's not doing what he was meant to be doing. So he calls his brother in tears and says, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I need to be in football. And his brother's like, what are you talking about? You didn't go to the combine. You didn't go for any workouts. You're done, bro. You're done. What, what are you talking about? He's like, no, not as a player. It hurts too much. I don't want to be in pain. I need to be a coach. I'm supposed to be a coach. So through their high school coach, Sala gets a contact with a, a head coach at Michigan State, I believe it was, where he gets his first grad assistant position. And he's there for a year. There's a coaching change. He realizes there's no future for him. His brother suggests that he gets in the car and drives to Central Michigan to go talk to Brian Kelly, who recruited Robert as a, an all-conference Division II tight end, recruited him to, to, Michigan, to Central Michigan. Kelly recognizes him, hires him on the spot as a grad assistant. He goes on to network his way from Central Michigan to Georgia. And when he gets to Georgia, he, real, he gets an offer to go to the NFL. And he goes in to talk to Mark Rick. And he's like, look, I, I'm thinking about doing this. Would it be okay? Because he's a week into his, his job as a grad assistant at Georgia. He's afraid he's going to get a bad name for bailing. Is it okay if I leave? And I'm getting goosebumps again. And Mark, and Mark Rick goes... Are you crazy? That's what we all work for. Get the hell out of here. Pack your stuff up and go. We'll be fine. Get out of here. So he gets in his car and he drives to go to go work for the Texans where he spends four years. And it's just every every step of the way, he is networking. He's working his network to get the next job, to climb the ladder, to get to where he wants to be. And he just, he wouldn't take no for an answer. The whole, the whole story is about him overcoming adversity, getting passed over for jobs, moving on to the next grad assistant position, moving on to the next, the next assistant coach position, quality control coach position. And one of the things that I love about him is when he got to Seattle working for Pete Carroll as a, as a quality control coach, it was an older staff. Nobody knew how to use computers. He taught himself how to use the computer and taught himself how to use analytics and playbook programs and all that kind of stuff to make himself indispensable in the game in the game planning process. And that's what got him his linebacker coach job with Gus Bradley. So he's just, he's like I said, he won't take no for an answer. He's climbed his way from the depths of coaching to the heights of coaching. He's ready to get his first head coaching job now. And it's just a really powerful story about realizing what you want to do and chasing your dreams and, and not letting anybody tell you no. And his players love him. Another part of that article was it starts by saying that when he first got to Seattle, Pete Carroll had all of his coaches sit down and write down their mission statement. 20 words or less, they had to describe their belief system, who they were, what, what their goals were for life. And his mission statement was a commitment to consistently execute the details required to compete at my greatest level with loyalty and conviction. And that just speaks to his character and how he goes about doing things. I mean, the, I loved his story. His backstory, Staley's backstory are just, 
amazing. And when you start getting into his coaching experience and the things that he's accomplished, it's unbelievable. Um, like you said, the ties to Gus are a little worrisome. <laughs> um, he runs that same four-three scheme. You mentioned the blitzing. They blitz a lot. They blitzed a lot this year out of necessity. They did not blitz very much the last two years. Um, they were right around 20% blitz rate for the last two years. This year it jumped up to almost 34% because they lost Solomon Thomas and Nick Bosa to injury, so they had to blitz more to create pressure. They had a lot of success with it. Um, the last two years his defense was second and fourth respectively in terms of third down efficiency. Uh, they have struggled a little bit in the red zone, but this is a team. This is a, a group that gets to the quarterback. This is a group that stops people on third down. Uh, and he found a way to adjust and put his players in a position to succeed when his best players, his best defensive line players, got hurt. And I just think you know he he extended Richard Sherman's career. He's ex- extended Jason Verrett's career. Uh, our our former colleague at Bolts from the Blue. Kyle uh, Posey will tell you straight up, and he has locker room access, he'll tell you straight up that uh, Sala played a huge role in developing Fred Warner and one of the better linebackers in the league. Uh, the man is, I mean, he's he just got an infectious personality, and it's the personality thing that I think really attracts me to him, and it's the th- and that's what I think makes him stand out in this class. There's just something, I think, special about him. And he has a little bit more experience than Staley, but they're both very inspirational, very hardworking, and just nose to the grindstone, won't take no for an answer kind of guys. And that's something that I'm really drawn to. because I just don't think this coaching staff has worked very hard the last few years. I don't think they've made adjustments. I know they've connected with players on personal levels, at least Lynn did, uh, but I just don't feel like there was a lot of teaching and developing going on. And I feel like that's something that Sala really excels at. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of high character guys, which I liked about some of these, this list of guys to interview, especially with Staley and Sala. So let's, uh, let's end our list here because this is the last name on our list before we get into the rumored. Oh no, we got two more. No, we got two more. Yeah. Scratch that. Okay. Before we got, of course we got two more, the two most important ones to a lot of people. Let's start with the chiefs offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy. So most Charger fans are probably familiar with Bieniemy. He's a former Colorado running back, played running back for the Chargers, um, spent five years as a running backs coach for Colorado and UCLA, uh, spent another four or five years as a running backs coach and assistant head coach at with the Vikings before taking the offensive coordinator job at his alma mater, Colorado, from 2011 to 2012. Uh, His time at Colorado did not go well as the offensive coordinator. They were 12th in scoring offense and 11th in total yards per game in 2011, and they were dead last in the Pac-12 in 2012 in both categories. Um, He is a guy who he gets high praise from former players, which I'm sure would go a long way. Uh, There are a couple quotes here that I think are worth hearing, and this is something that Jim Trotter put on Twitter yesterday. Uh, there were a lot of reports that uh, Biennemi had not interviewed well with the Falcons. And it's coming out now that that was not, in fact, the case. But Trotter talked to two former players. And he talked to Michael Vick and he talked to Patrick Mahomes. And both of them had very similar things to say about him. They say he has a presence in the locker room. They both say he's a tireless worker. He's extremely demanding. Um, they say that when 
when Biennemi talks, people listen. They say he's always in the building. Patrick Mahomes joked that he thinks that Biennemi sleeps in the building. He says if he's in the building, Biennemi's in the building, usually before him. They both say he relates to everybody. Patrick Mahomes said that he's involved in the game planning and he does draw up some plays, uh, but he, they both believe that he's the kind of guy who has the character and the personality and the ability to connect to players that will make him a quality head coach. I think the thing that concerns me with him is I know he's been getting a lot of credit for that offense in Kansas City, but that is, that's Andy Reid's playbook. And he may draw up some plays every week, but Andy Reid has been one of the best play callers in the league for 20 years, it seems like. Uh, that's Andy Reid's playbook. Andy Reid calls the plays. There is even some belief that quarterbacks coach Mike Kafka is more responsible for developing Mahomes than than Eric Bieniemy is. I think it's really difficult to put a finger on what Bieniemy does as the offensive coordinator for that team. A couple of things that popped up to me: he he was offered the head coaching job at Colorado, his alma mater, before this season, and turned it down. And apparently he's been telling people privately that he might wait for the perfect job before leaving Kansas City. So it seems like maybe he's not entirely sold on his ability to just fit in anywhere and be a good head coach. He's looking to fall into the right position. And rightly, he recognizes that he's in a great situation with Andy Reid and why leave that if it's not the right situation. But I just have my concerns, you know, not a play caller, never had to manage a game. Uh, the one time he was a play caller for two years in college in a, in a conference that plays basically no defense, his offenses were terrible. Uh, I would have my reservations. I, I, maybe it's just me. I'm not sure I would want to be the, the first person to hire Eric Bieniemy as a head coach. I think he's going to take his lumps, and I think people might realize that he is not the, the offensive genius that they think he is, at least not right now. Not saying he hasn't learned a lot from, from Andy Reid. Um, I'm sure he has, but... I just don't know what he does. I don't know what he's responsible for. I'm not sure what his impact on that offense is. And and that worries me a little bit if you're bringing him in to develop uh, Justin Herbert and fix the offense. So I he is not in my top five, and he's not somebody that I'm particularly high on. Oh, man. Okay. Well, uh, so mentioned that he uh, was the running backs coach for the Vikings. Of course, that was at 2006 to 2009 where he coached Adrian Peterson in his first four years. Uh, he also was the running backs coach for the Chiefs when Jamal Charles had his best season of his career with 12 touchdowns. Then he held that role until he got promoted in 2018. Now, uh, you're talking about what he does with the offense, and that's something that I had to look pretty deep in the internet to find exactly what he does because it's a good question. You don't know. You know Andy recalls the play. So what I found is basically Eric Bieniemy assembles the Chiefs playbook. He puts together a weekly game plan and he runs the offensive meetings. Andy Reid, who chooses the plays that Bienemy had laid out, and then Bienemy relays the plays to Patrick Mahomes and his helmet on game days. If Bienemy objects to any plays, he and Reid quickly talk about it or call timeout to discuss it, so the play calling is fluid. Uh, once I heard that process, it kind of struck a nerve because it's like, how long did we watch Ken Wisenhunt not be able to get plays into Philip Rivers, him tap his helmet or you know wave his hand going, get the play in, get the play in. The Chiefs have a two-tiered dialogue process, and they're able to get plays in and still get uh, – that blows my mind that they're able to do that that quickly. That's we watched unreal. It, we watched it this year too, by the way, with Lynn and Steichen not yeah. being able to communicate and get plays in. How many end-of-game communication issues did they have? 
Right. So Andy Reid calls the play, gives it to Biennemi. Biennemi gives it to Patrick Mahomes. And yet that's a chain of command. And the Chargers just have one guy to call one play <laughs> to one quarterback, and they can't get it in in time. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, what exactly he does. So technically he doesn't call the plays. Obviously it's fluid. So he has somewhat of a play, but I mean, Andy Reed won the Super Bowl last year. He's one of the best call players in the NFL. Like you mentioned, uh, may go down as one of the best ever to do it. So that's, that's his right to do that. And he should be calling the plays and that's why they won a Super Bowl with uh, Matt Nagy as the offensive coordinator before getting the bears head coaching job, Tyreek Hill, which I read, was very open about how complicated that system was, and they were still a very good team, but how much better Biennemi's offensive scheme was compared to Nagy. And while Biennemi was a running backs coach, he said in an interview that he was more concerned with pushing the ball downfield than he was getting his running backs the ball, which is something we cannot say about Lynn, who was also a running backs coach. So he gets the concept of an offense, pushing the ball downfield. And yeah, that's kind of important. (laughs) Then running out of clock when you don't have a lead, you know, that type of thing. So um, another knock against Biennemi, other than the fact that he doesn't technically call plays, which I guess is half true. I mean, it's true, kind of half true, whatever. But the other one is people are critical of Andy Reid's coaching tree uh, with guys like Brad Childress and Matt Nagy and Pat Shermer. But, you know, it also launched John Harbaugh, Sean McDermott, Ron Rivera, Doug Peterson, I mean, I I don't know if that's really a knock on Andy Reid's playbook. I think it's kind of hit or miss. There has been a lot of success with that coaching tree. As are all coaching trees, by the way. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, The other downside is, you know, like you mentioned, you know, people are talking about how he didn't have a good interview. Obviously, we found that that's not true with the Falcons, but all of last year, Biennemi was doing interviews and he didn't get the job. So... Maybe that, you know, thing that you read about him wanting the perfect situation, maybe that's true. Maybe there is some truth that he's not a great interviewer. I, I don't know. You know, that that's just been the report. That's what they were hanging that whole Falcons interview not going well with. Last year it didn't work out. He interviewed a bunch. People didn't like him. But I don't know anything about that, and I, I can't speak to that. So, you know, I have no idea what he's like. But we know that he's a good leader. He's talked about that. Uh, players love his offense and his scheme. He can obviously lead a, a locker room, uh, lead a, a position group. He can design a playbook. So, to me, he's kind of almost a as close to a head coach as you can get in Kansas City. So he's at least got that kind of experience. He's got offensive coordinator experience uh, designing a playbook. Maybe he doesn't call the plays, but – He's familiar with it. Uh, he's obviously ahead of the curve compared to a lot of these other guys we've talked about. I really like that he understands the importance of getting help. He was an assistant head coach in Minnesota, and he's practically one in Kansas City. So he's the type of guy who said that he would not be opposed to having like a, you know, a game manager on the sideline, somebody you know going above and beyond and getting the help if he can't get it. So knowing that you know, hey, maybe I can call the plays, but it's important to help other guys out like Andy Reid is with BNME right now in Kansas City. So that I get. And obviously he would have intel on a Chargers interdivisional rival, but that didn't work with McCoy. That was supposed to be a big thing when he left the Broncos. So how much help is that really going to help? But he knows what a winning culture looks like in Kansas City. Uh, every offensive player raves about BNME. I think he's a good one. I think he could be a very good p- fit with the Chargers higher on him than you are a guy wouldn't mind the chargers hiring but i think above everybody else and i you know i 
don't want to spoil it or give anything away, but there's an offensive coordinator we need to talk about now, which is the last guy on our list before we talk about Urban Meyer and the rumors surrounding him. And that is the Bills offensive coordinator, Brian Dable. Uh, he started out as a defensive coaching assistant with the, and then with wide receiver coach with the Patriots in 2000 to 2006. He was the QB coach for the Jets, then became an offensive coordinator with the Browns, Dolphins, Chiefs. In 2017, Dable was the co-offensive coordinator at Alabama, then got the OC gig with Buffalo in 2018. He's won five Super Bowls as an assistant, a national title with Alabama as an offensive coordinator. Uh, looking back at Josh Allen's offense at Wyoming and what he inherited, you know, they really tried to utilize in Wyoming in college his strong arm and kind of that deep passing game. It was an offense in which the Bills implemented when they drafted him because they thought that's what he was most used to. While Allen's got a cannon, he shortly realized, Dable did, his real strength was under 10 yards. So Dable shifted his whole scheme to a quick-timing offense that set up the deep passing game and his rocket arm, and that caused the shift, and the shift was the analytics. Dable went to the analytics, something we all love and wish any head coach the Chargers were coaching would go to. Because of his new scheme, in 2018, the pressure rate was 31st. They dropped to 21st the following year. In 2018, it was the 23rd in sack rate. It dropped to 19th. The interception rate was 32nd in 2018. It dropped to 14th. Everything shifted from year to year when they went to that short passing game to set up the deep passing game. Now in 2021, Josh Allen has ascended to an MVP candidate. He's been a dark horse this season. They just beat the Colts to move on to the playoffs, and that's because the Bills' investment in the offensive line, which Dable's obviously known the importance of, and more importantly because of Dable's new risk-averse offensive system. I cannot express how huge Dable's impact has been on Josh Allen. He is an absolute miracle worker. College quarterbacks with under 57% completion percentage with over 600 career attempts has never been successful. There has been none. There's been zero quarterbacks. It's guys like Ryan Lindley, Derek Anderson, Christian Hackenberg, Kyle Bowler, Jake Locker, Tom Savage, and Josh Allen. None of those names you want to be associated with. Dable is a miracle worker. He took a non-functioning college quarterback and made him a dark horse NFL MVP quarterback who's going deep into the playoffs now. That Dable's offense consists of a group of quick-twitch route runners like Cole Beasley, John Brown, and now Stefan Diggs. They run that five to seven route patterns, giving them the opportunity to get open. He runs those core concepts he learned at New England from the drop-pack passing game, and then he blends it with this new-age play design and play action. It is borderline genius. He is lovely to watch. It's a quick offense with misdirection. He throws in play actions, jet sweeps, tight bunch formations that gives his receivers two-way goes to get open on the outside. He then gives Josh Allen the ability to run on keepers too. I mean, this is the perfect blend of old school, new school, and everything that Justin Herbert needs. Uh, the common question that I've been getting on Twitter is Dable obviously works in the booth, and now we're getting we're nitpicking. He works in the booth. So could he be a good head coach on the field? 
The answer is obviously yes. Kyle Shanahan was the guy who worked in the booth. He's now on the field. I'd say the 49ers have done pretty good. There's obviously other examples of that. That's not that big of a deal. Also, some are asking about Dable's stint with the Browns in 2009 and 2010 and how that offense was not good at all. Was it concerning? He had Brady Quinn, Jake Delhomme, Colt McCoy, and Seneca Wallace as the quarterbacks for those two four quarterbacks in two years, none of which are any good. I would say that's probably more of a product of the talent and the environment than it is of Dable. And if you look at it, he's clearly grown since. So that's far in the river. Oh, so long ago. You don't even remember those. Who even remembers Seneca Wallace? (laughs) I mean, I haven't thought about him in forever. So the fact that he is still pretty young, he's 45. He's an analytically driven play caller. There's obviously those parallels of Josh Allen and Justin Herbert that are real close. A Dable system is tailor-made for a guy like Justin Herbert in this offense. It would mean more quick routes with Keenan, which is his strength, setting up Herbert's big arm, getting Herbert on the move more, which we've talked about. All recipes for success. At this point, the only real knock for me is he isn't as animated as Robert Sala, but who cares at this point? He doesn't have the feel-good story like Staley or Sala, but he is super competitive, or Sala, excuse me. He's super competitive, therefore it's not a problem. He can lead a locker room. Dable's a lot of fun. I don't want to give away where he is on my list, but he is definitely in my top five for sure. I think we know where he is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's much surprise there. No mystery. I'm not hiding it very well, huh? No, no you're not. Uh, no, I mean, I totally agree with everything you're saying. You know, going back to 2009 and 2010 and asking if his offense bothered us. I mean, you mentioned the quarterbacks. I think they were throwing to Josh Cribbs. So, yeah. This was not a good football team. There was no talent on this team. And his system has evolved. His scheme has evolved. You mentioned the analytics. Um, they went through a series this year of playing very some very, very tight games in the first six or seven weeks of the season. They'd build a two or three score lead, kind of coast. The opposition would climb back into the game, and they'd have to scramble to win the game at the end. And, he, and Dayball learned from his mistakes right away. In season, in game, he learned from his mistakes. I think the turning point for them was right around the Arizona Cardinals game, where they got they had that Hail Mary and they lost the game, and I think they lost thirty-two to thirty in week seven or eight. From that point on, they were blowing people out. They were building big leads and adding to them, throwing the ball down the field. Really, I mean, right now. Cobra Kai is all the rage on on YouTube. <laughs> oh, here we go. Pop culture reference. Okay. Mm-hmm. Brian Dayball is John Kreese. Yes. Josh yes. Allen. Yes. Josh Allen is Johnny Lawrence. Uh-huh. Young Johnny Lawrence. Yep. And the Bills offense is Cobra Kai. There we they go. They strike first, they strike hard, and they beat the shit out of everybody they play. Yes. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> when they have to, they sweep the leg. They do whatever it takes to win the game. He's not done. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> this isn't Miyagi-Do. It's not Miyagi-Do. They're not playing defense and pinning the fence. They're yeah. out there to bust your nose, break your leg, and win the game. They're not so. selling cars anymore. <laughs> no. So, I, to me, you know, you watch the way the offense evolved, not just from year to year to year, which, by the way, was pretty remarkable in terms of DVOA. They were 32nd in team offensive DVOA in 2018, 21st in 2019, and 5th in 2020. 
Josh Allen's personal DVA went from 33rd to 28th to 3rd. So he went from basically being a bust to being an NFL, an MVP candidate pretty much overnight. Uh, they're extremely successful on first and second down. They have a 58% success rate on first and second down. And it's mostly because they put the ball in Allen's hands and they throw the ball, I think it's 62 or 63% of the time on first and second down, more than any other team in the league. Their success rate of 58% is third best. So And their success rate from the last three years went from 31st in the league to 20th to 8th. Third down success rate went from 32% to 38% to 50%. So they're right in that range you want to be in terms of converting third downs. They scored touchdowns on 62% of their red zone, red zone trips this year. Uh, and the thing that stands out to me is I feel like Dayball is what I would call a predictive or anticipatory play caller. He played safety in college. He's been a defensive assistant. He learned under both Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, so he understands how defensive coordinators think. He understands how the defensive side of the ball works, and his play calling reflects that. He combines formations, motion, traffic, and simple passing concepts to game plan around what, what the defense is doing instead of what he wants to do. So the game, yeah. So basically what I'm saying is instead of just going into the game and doing what he wants to do every game, he knows what the defense is going to do, and he's planning to beat the defense. So this is not a Ken Wisenhunt, Shane Steichen, this is our offense, this is what we're going to do, this is what we do really well, even though they don't do it well. The game plan changes every week, and they attack every defense differently. Um, I feel like he does an excellent job of stressing soft spots and zones to force defenders into reading what he's doing rather than asking John Al Josh Allen to read the defense. Uh he also, like I mentioned, he went through the series of tight games, and really after week nine, they never looked back. They started blowing people out, and it was all because he changed the way he manages leads in the game by building on them and putting people away. Uh, I just, I feel like this is a, a very adaptive, very smart. You mentioned very analytical coach. Uh, he has an economics degree, so you know he's engrossed in statistics and analytics and numbers, and he gets it. And his, his play calling changes it, uh, shows that. You watch the playoff game um, yesterday, and it, it was a, a little bit uneven, the playoff game on Saturday. It was a little bit uneven, but when they started opening up the offense and throwing the ball down the field, they got yards in chunks, and they scored touchdowns. And that's what ultimately won the game for them. We saw a lot of seam routes, a lot of plays in the middle of the field between the linebackers and the safeties, challenging and stressing the cover two defense that that uh, Matt Eberflus uses. And he got them their first playoff win since, what, 1998 or something like that? Forever. So, yeah, forever. Yeah, this is a, a fantastic coach. I think he would be perfect for Josh Herbert. You mentioned the similarities between Herbert and Allen. I think Herbert, there are a lot of physical similarities. I think there are some similarities in the way both of them see the field, although I think Herbert's a little bit ahead of where Allen is even right now in terms of seeing the field. Uh, and I think there are a lot of similarities in the way they need to play from a physical standpoint to be successful. I think you'll see those quarterback runs. You know, we heard a lot this season from Anthony Lynn about, well, we, we want to limit the amount of hits that Herbert takes. So we're going to put stick in for a few plays or we're not going to run him or we're just going to drop him back five to seven five to seven steps and have them throw the deep ball. 
I think Allen takes hits on their terms, the way he wants them to take hits, by getting him out on the edge and running the ball, moving the pocket around. He's not a pocket passer, and they don't really ask him to be a consistent pocket passer. They allow him to roll out and make throws on the move. Everything they do with him is amazing. I think there's still a lot of work to be done with him, and I think there's less work to be done with Herbert. I think there are some accuracy issues that need to be corrected, which, by the way, Dayball did an amazing job of correcting with with Josh Allen, and Herbert's accuracy issues are not anywhere near what Allen's were coming out of college. And Herbert's already more accurate than Allen is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he's a miracle worker. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. They're efficient. They're productive. They're explosive. Uh, they go for the jugular whenever they can. Uh, it's the kind of offense that I would want Josh, uh, Justin Herbert playing in, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so let's go ahead and uh, finish up our little list here before we talk about anybody that's not on our list. And uh, the name here that, that's at the end here that isn't part of the interviews but is rumored to be interested in the Chargers job, uh, there has been no talk about if the Chargers are interested in Urban Meyer, but there's just a rumor so if Brian Darba, uh, Dable is Johnny Lawrence, this is your Danny LaRusso of <laughs> head coaching candidates, as Jamie would say. Maybe even worse. Is there somebody <laughs> worse than that? Is uh, Urban Meyer. So tell me your thoughts on Urban Meyer. I mean, look, we all know the successes for Urban Meyer. National championships at Florida, national championships at Ohio State. Uh, he has churned out countless NFL, not just players, but stars. Uh, he always has good offenses. He puts his quarterbacks in a position to succeed, although he has not exactly developed NFL caliber quarterbacks at the college level. Uh, He is a guy who certainly knows his football, certainly knows his personnel, certainly knows what he needs for his scheme to be successful. Uh, He is, I understand why people are interested just from the standpoint of he's been so successful in college that why wouldn't you want that coaching your team? Uh, I do have some concerns, though, to be perfectly honest with you. I have some concerns. Some, okay. A lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, first of all, you know, I I was saying early on that I wanted the Chargers to hire Jim Harbaugh because I thought they needed an experienced head coach. And people kept coming back to me and saying, well, he's not winning at Michigan. Why would you want to bring that here? Because I already know he can win at the NFL level. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen him adjust his (laughs) offense. I've seen him adjust his offense to suit both Alex Smith and uh, Colin Kaepernick, both of whom were completely different quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen him go to, I think it was three uh, NFC Championship games and one Super Bowl. So I know he can do it. I don't know that Urban Meyer can do that. I don't know that Urban Meyer can use his style, which most people say is kind of the bully, intimidating method to motivate and push grown men who are making more money than he is at the NFL level to do what he wants them to do no matter what. It's a lot easier to take an 18 or 19-year-old kid and say, I'm going to pull your scholarship if you don't do what I want. They're going to do what you want because they don't want their scholarship pulled. I think there are also significant character issues with him. Uh, Meyer is a guy who left Florida under fishy circumstances. He also left Ohio state under fishy circumstances. Now, any, every time he leaves, he always says, well, I have health issues. I have to leave. And he, it's true. He does have 
cyst in his brain, I believe. Yep. However, that cyst never seems to be an issue until he's about to get fired. Then it's an issue. So I have some concerns about the way he leaves programs. I he he's been accused of hiding drug dirty drug tests. He certainly helped cover up his assistant coach's domestic abuse issues, accused of hiding rapes. He basically enabled Aaron Hernandez to become a murderer at, while, while he played for him at Florida. Uh, he is a guy who he uses something called a circle of trust or a brotherhood of trust, which basically says, as long as you're playing well, I'll cover up anything you do off the field to keep you on the field. And he is a win-at-all-cost guy. And I just feel like he's a guy who... I'm not with the way he he checks out with health issues. I'm not sure he's going to stick at the NFL level. I have serious questions about the way he's going to motivate players. Uh, I feel like I don't know. I as much as you want to win, I kind of feel like you're selling your soul on a lot of levels to hire him. And like I said, you don't know that he could do it at the NFL level. And I think he's a guy who's going to require a lot of money, probably a lot of power. And based on the reports, and again, these are just rumors, but it sounds like he's probably going to wind up in Jacksonville, and I'm not even sure the Chargers are interested in him. It just doesn't seem like they're kind of higher. So, and not to mention with as dysfunctional as they are in the in the uh, front office, how's he going to handle that? So, I just, as much as I want a successful head coach, a, a an experienced head coach with proven success. I just don't know how winning at the at the college level translates to winning at the NFL level, and there are countless examples of how it doesn't. So I, it just concerns me. Oh yeah, no, this is a recipe for disaster. And you know he's won national titles, and that's great. Uh, has a, an impressive ability to recruit kids at the college level, but that that doesn't matter because he he could bring the most talented kids he could in college, but in the NFL he just cannot do that. He's not going to be able to recruit kids like he does these high school kids and bring them to your big college program. In terms of a coach, he he has that patented spread offense, and uh, that system has been effective everywhere he's coached, but the downside is he's only really been as good as his quarterback's been, which is, you know, for a coach, he's just one of those ride-or-die-to-his-spread-scheme coaches, which obviously is an old school mentality that adjustment on the fly just isn't there. He's just, he goes with what works when he struggles with it. We saw it when he had Braxton Miller, it just, it doesn't work. His spread offense is as good as his quarterback. And this is just in terms of a personality standpoint, you know, you talked about it. He's going to want to get paid. We don't know what that number is. The number that was thrown out was refuted by Ian Rappaport. Either way, he's going to want some kind of money. It's not going to come cheap especially in terms of uh, coaching salary goes, and he's going to want power, like you mentioned. And he's already met with the Jags twice. He met on the owner's boat recently. So, you know, that's all but probably done. But, you know, he's also going to want to bring his own coaching staff with him. He's talked about already, uh, like, putting together his own coaching staff with, you know, talked to the Jaguars about it. So the Chargers won't have much say in that. So the Chargers basically have to clean house, and let Meyer have some power. And, you know, I don't see Spanos paying for Meyer as much as he wants, and I don't see him giving as much power as he wants. So I don't think that happens, and I don't think they're very interested. Uh, In terms of the medical issues, I mean, you talked about how he's left Florida and Urban and uh, Ohio State because of these um, issues. And I know he's a grown man, but at this point, if they are so bad at the college level, 
how is he going to deal with losing at the NFL level? Because he is famously not being able to deal with losing well. He takes it personally, and it, ta- and it takes a toll on his body, according to him. So, you know, that's why he had those esophageal spasms. That's why he had the brain cyst. He doesn't deal with stress well, and that's at a college level. Imagine having his job depend on, on it at an NFL level. He's had to, quote-unquote, retire twice. If I'm in his family, I would say, you just shouldn't do this. But it's his own thing. But in terms of health, that just doesn't bode well for him. And what does that look like for your future? Yeah. You don't want to go there, but if he's had to retire twice at a college level, how long can you count on Urban Meyer to run your franchise? I don't think all that long, to be honest. And people are all forgetting all the how he disgraced Florida and Ohio State. You mentioned a lot of it. I'm going to pile on here. Carlos Hyde was caught slapping a woman at a bar, and basically Urban Meyer hit it for as long as he could. Uh, the tape came out, and then he just put a little slap on his wrist and told him he couldn't play for two games, two games in which didn't matter to the program. Percy Harvin attacked a coach on the sideline. Meyer didn't do anything about it. One of his coaches used a racial slur. You talked about how he hid the um, domestic abuse. One of his coaches used a racial slur at a player. Meyer tried to hide it. He then got caught lying about it. And then he was caught enabling that. He actually flew to see his kid, the kid's mom to convince her not to say anything about it publicly. Exactly. So he w- he went to the kid's mom, say, don't uh, share this whole thing. He then then during the investigation, they found his phone and all his texts were deleted. <laughs> so and then there were talks within the organization that he w- he did it on purpose as a psychological motivation for that player. So he wanted to get his players riled up, told his coach allegedly to use a racial slur towards the player. And rather than the player using it as motivation, Obviously not. He took it personally. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. That tactic doesn't work. And <laughs> so, listen, man, I'm out on Urban Meyer. I, To be honest with you, I might take Jason Garrett over Urban Meyer. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't like his personality. I don't like his... And, you know, he's famously using these psychological factors on players, and it's not going to work at the NFL level. And like you mentioned, they're going to be making more money than he is. So that's not going to work on him. I don't want Urban Meyer. I don't like his coaching tactics. I think his offense is outdated. He won at the college level. Congratulations. Don't think he could do it at the NFL level. Let the Jags have him. I am completely all the way out. Yeah, I think if you hire Urban Meyer for four or five years on a contract, I would not be surprised if he's out the door in three because of health issues. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, either that or he's going to cover something up for a player or say something or do something stupid and you're going to get busted. I mean, I supported Harbaugh and Harbaugh is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> he is an asshole. But absolutely. But he knows his shit and he wins at the NFL level. Yeah. And there are so many unknowns. And, th- and then there's nothing – Nothing illegal about Harbaugh. There's nothing scandalous about Harbaugh. He just has a... He's just a flaming asshole. He just has a really (laughs) difficult personality, and he wants things done a very specific way. But you know what? It fucking works. Yeah. So I... I, and, And I think on some level, that conflict, that idea of everybody has to get along and everybody has to be nice, that's something the Chargers have been working on for a long time, and it doesn't work. Maybe they need somebody yeah. to come in and tell them what they're doing wrong. 
but you just don't need somebody who's going to cover up a rape or use a racial slur or tell a coach <laughs> to use a racial slur or cover up a cover up uh, d- dirty drug test by having kids wear boots on the sideline or right. You know the whole thing. With- oh yeah, you didn't. Yes, that's the that's the kicker. Is not only did they hide drug tests, but he had the player put a boot on, and pretend they were injury. injured. Yep, fake an injury so they wouldn't get caught that he that they failed the drug test. All in the name of he winning. He's unbelievable. At the and by the How way, is nobody bringing any of this up anymore. He's he's getting paid to turn men into or to, to turn boys into men, and he's not doing it. So yeah. I. I, oh. I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. I know people want to win, but I don't know. I just I, I don't think it I don't think it works. And you meant you made a really good point about the, the health concerns and the hours, the stress level at the NFL level. He has said apparently it was reported that he said that he likes the idea of coaching in the NFL because they quote have an off season. Really? Because the season ends in January, you're st- you're preparing for the draft and free agency in February. Free agency starts in March. The draft is in April. Minicamp is in May. Training camp starts in July. You know what? There's no off-season. It's a year-round job. It's a year-round 24-7 job. So if you can't handle that in college, it's probably not going to work real well in the NFL. That's my guess. No. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think so either. Yeah, I'm out on Urban Meyer. And um, let's, I mean, we got to, finish this up here so uh let's go ahead and talk about the guy that you want to mention that is not on on this list okay so the one guy that i that is not on the list of confirmed candidates but as somebody who was on the lat in the last cycle the chargers interviewed in the last cycle when they hired anthony lynn somebody we were both very high on and somebody who i think they should look at again because of all the issues they've been having is dave tobe the special the special teams coordinator for the kansas city Chiefs. chiefs Yep. This is a guy who played in the NFL. He played center in the NFL. He spent 15 years at Missouri as a strength and conditioning coach and as a defensive line coach. He's spent three years as a special teams coach and quality control coach for the Eagles. Interestingly enough, he was the first ever special teams quality con- control coach in NFL history. Did not realize that until tonight. Eight years as the Bears special team coach, seven years as the, as the chief special team coach, and the last two years as an assistant head coach. He started interviewing for jobs in 2012, so I'm not really sure why he hasn't been hired other than the fact that hiring a special teams coordinator is not all that sexy. Um, yeah. This is a guy who basically has spent his entire career developing special teams pro bowlers. His whole job has has been – to basically develop the bottom third of the roster for every team he's worked for. That's all special teams coordinators do. And special teams coordinators teach blocking. They teach tackling. They teach kicking. You've got to teach the people blocking on your, on your, uh, your special teams units how to be in the right four-point stance, how to be balanced. Uh, he has a strength and conditioning coach, which last time I checked, uh, a, a history as a special teams coach, as a, strength and conditioning coach, which the last time I checked is something the Chargers have had a hell of a lot of problems with over the years. Um, And he's always been praised for his attention to detail and his ability to teach everything from blocking to kicking to tackling. And the one thing that special teams coordinators do that offensive and defensive coordinators don't do is they work with offensive players and defensive players. 
linebackers, wide receivers, safeties, offensive linemen, defensive linemen. All these guys play on special teams. So he has relationships with all of them. They all, from what I read, everybody loves working with him. And he understands how to connect with these people and teach them the skills specific to their positions. These are all very important things. And these are all things the Chargers, the teaching aspect, the detail, the teaching, these are all things the Chargers have had issues with for a long time. Andy Reid himself praises Tobe for being a problem solver, a motivator, and a tireless worker. And a story that I got about him that I love, which I didn't get the last time around, was Tobe grew up relatively poor, but he wanted to become, he, he was very into weightlifting. He wanted to get bigger and stronger for football. Couldn't afford equipment. You know what he did? He built a gym in his parents' garage out of oh, yeah, extra, that. extra gear that was laying around the house, built a leg machine, built a bench press machine, built it all himself. Yeah. He also built a multi-million dollar home in Missouri, which he now lives in from scratch, from the ground up, all by himself. So if that doesn't speak to somebody who has an, an amazing attention to detail and is, a, is able to solve problems and work across you know many different disciplines, I don't know what does. Or build a team from the ground up, if you may. Or build a team from the ground up. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you. So look, I, I don't know why he's not getting hired. Again, I think these offensive coordinators or the sexy hire defense coordinators are a little, less, a little bit less so. But Tobe is an outstanding coach. He's 57 years old, so he's not a baby like some of these guys. He's been there, done that. He's worked for An- Andy Reid for a long time. They actually came up together. from They, they coached at Missouri together, and Andy Reid brought him every step of the way along with him. So I think he's a fantastic coach. Kansas City's special teams – have never had, they've never been ranked lower in DVA than ninth in all of his time at Kansas City. So this is a guy who knows what he's doing, works with all levels of the, of the team with, with kind of a holistic approach. I think he's a great fit. I don't know why he's not getting more talk as a candidate. I don't know why he hasn't been hired already, but I think this guy's a fantastic candidate and he's somebody who I think the Chargers should be looking at for sure. Yeah, no, uh, love him. He's not in my top five. He just got out of it. I, I considered him. But just to add on to what you're saying, uh, had success everywhere he went. He was with the Bears special teams before Kansas City with Devin Hester and that electric group of uh, special teams. So that he's, I mean, he's had success everywhere he went. And then also Andy Reid recently made him an assistant coach uh, at Kansas City. So gave him a promotion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah, and he also... He was the quality control coach for the special teams unit that got Jim Harbaugh hired. I mean, sorry, John Harbaugh, John Harbaugh hired at Baltimore. Right, and he was special teams coordinator. Uh, wasn't a sexy hire then, but you know he he deserves his due. His due. Totally. I agree. So Completely. let's go top five now. Let's do it. Five to one. Give me your top five of these candidates that we've discussed today. My number five is Robert Sala. He would have been much higher on my list because of the way that I connected with his story if it wasn't for his ties to Gus and the fact that traditionally he's not somebody who blitzes a whole lot. Uh, And also, I'm not sure that the 4-3 scheme is something that really fits the Chargers' defense anymore. I think they need to be more creative and mix their fronts a little bit more and find new ways to create pressure from different areas. And I'm not sure his scheme is best suited. And they absolutely need to find a way to get to unleash... uh, um, Kenneth Murray uh, as a pass rusher. So I love Sala. I love his story. I'd be very happy if they hired him. 
not at the top of my list, but he's my number five. And again, those ties to Gus and the fact that he typically is not very aggressive on defense concerns me a little bit. But I love the fiery personality. I love the backstory. I love everything about him except for the scheme and the ties to Gus. My number five is Arthur Smith, the Titans offensive coordinator. Now, I know he didn't have a good first playoff weekend, but I'm not going to hold that against him because I thought last year he was remarkable in the playoffs and took the Titans really deep, almost went to the Super Bowl last year. Um, I love the fact that he has heavy play action. I think that's something that Justin Herbert needs and something the offense is missing. And also the parallels between Ryan Tannehill and Justin Herbert are really close. Very close similarities in terms of skill set. And I know that he can maximize Justin Herbert's talents. He did it with Ryan Tannehill. So I'm going to go with Arthur Smith as my number five. Dave Tobe was my number six. I flip-flopped with both of them. I couldn't figure out what my five was, but I just think... The offense that Arthur runs, his scheme, while there might not be the right personnel here with the Chargers, I do think his overall offensive philosophy can work with Justin Herbert and the Chargers offense. Number four for me is Dave Tobe. I already talked about him, um, talked about him the last two cycles. I just love everything about his history as a coach, his background, the fact that he already is accustomed to working with all three phases of the team. Uh, people on both both offense and defense. I just think he's, I think he's a fantastic coach. I think he would bring a more holistic approach to the team that that, that they've been missing uh, for a long time. And I think he would also go a long way towards developing depth, productive depth, which is something that has been an issue for the Chargers for shit since Marty left. My number four is Eric Bieniemy, the Chiefs offensive coordinator. I just think what he's done with Patrick Mahomes in that offense has been great. I know Andy Reid has a big say and a lot of pull in that room, but Eric Bieniemy does a lot with that offense. He knows how to build a playbook. He knows how to call plays. He knows what it takes to win. He's won a Super Bowl with the Chiefs, and I get it. Andy Reid is all over that. He is a masterful play caller. He deserves to do so. But Eric Bieniemy would be a great addition for the Chargers. I think he could lead men. I love the fact that he knows how to run a room. He knows how to build a playbook. He knows how to call plays. I'm in on Eric Bieniemy, and I'm not using any of these rumors about Eric Bieniemy and not being a good interview into my decision. I just think what he's done with the Chiefs and what he could do with the Chargers offense would really help them out. So I got Eric Bieniemy at number four. Yeah, he did not make my top five. Um, and I just want to say too, you know, all this stuff about not interviewing well, we don't know how he interviewed. So that's not something we can really comment on. We can right. just tell you what people are saying. That has since been refuted. I've also heard some people come out and say that you have to be wary of his legal history. He's been in some trouble, but I don't want to make this I'm I don't want to make this about racial profiling. I don't think that's fair. Almost all I think pretty much all of his legal history was from two thousand four or before. He's a grown man. We all make mistakes. Um, I don't think that's a reason to exclude him. It's not why I excluded him. I just, I'm just not comfortable with the fact that I can't put my finger on exactly what he does. So that's why he didn't make my list. Okay, number three. My number three is Matt Eberflus, the defensive coordinator for the Colts. Uh, we talked a lot. He he was my number two going into this process, and he dropped a little bit, but. Uh, still very high on him. The attention to detail, the idea that he holds people accountable, the the way that he really stresses alignment, assignment, key, and technique. 
the way his defense records turnovers, how efficient they are, all of it lines up. I, I love the culture of accountability. I love it. I think the Chargers have tried to implement that and maybe went about it the wrong way in some ways with Lynn and the way he handled, for example, Des King. Um, but I, I just love the way he goes about his business, and I really like the way that he came out of his comfort zone and was more aggressive and attacked more in the playoffs when it mattered. It didn't pay off with a win, but I do think it's something that he deserves a lot of credit for and something that suggests that it's something he will continue to do as his responsibilities grow and the moments continue to get bigger. So I love Matt Eberflus. He's my number three. I got Robert Sala at number three, the 49ers defensive coordinator. Now, I know he's got ties to Gus, but I'm not going to hold that against him either. I just think what he's done with the 49ers across the board defensively has been great. And I know that he doesn't blitz that often, but when he does, he is very successful. And he did a lot at this year, and I think maybe he has learned something. I love his defensive philosophy, the things he gets out of his defensive line. I love what he gets out of his DBs, his corners. They are a cohesive unit. And most of all, he's a leader of men. This guy is the most fiery of the bunch. And I really respect how he's climbed his way through organizations and networked his way to the top. I just think that his fire zone alignments are absolutely beautiful. And I'd love to see some of that with a Chargers defense. Obviously, they lost Gus, so that would be an easy fill-in for Robert Sala. I just think he's got the makeup to be a pretty good head coach. So I've got him at number three. My number two is Brandon Staley. Yes! Um, <laughs> yes! Yes! <laughs> like, yeah! like we talked about, the backstory is amazing. Um, the history of you know climbing his way up from the depths of coaching to the heights of coaching is amazing. The way his players rave about him, I just love. The fact that he's a football junkie and he's constantly studying and texting his players with tidbits of information, the the way his players seem to jump routes and know where the ball is going before it goes there, I just think this guy is a teacher. Uh, He's creative. He's innovative. He does a hell of a job of creating pressure on defense. His players will go to bat for him. I love it. I love everything about it. Uh, And to be honest, I went into this thinking Dayball was number one. Staley almost overtook him as number one, but man, it's close. I think for me, it's one and two and everybody else. And Staley is amazing. I'd be thrilled if they hired him. Yes. Yes. See, I didn't, nobody has talked about how high Brandon Staley is and how good he is as a coach because he's only got that one year of experience and he's green. I I thought I was going to surprise you here with number two. You went with me, and I am so with you. It is is Dable. It is Staley. It's everybody else, and you could basically flip-flop them for me. I mean, Jason Garrett's an absolutely fucking not from me. Joe Brady, (laughs) (laughs) Urban Meyer, too. Uh, Joe Brady, I'm, I'm really not that big of a fan of. He's way towards the bottom of my list. But I think you can interchange a lot of these other guys with Eberflus and Arthur Smith, Biennemi, Sala, all these guys, can, which, I, which I'm happy with because I think there's a lot of good candidates in this group. Yeah. But it goes Brian Dable, the miracle worker. It goes Brandon Staley, the kid wonder. And then it goes everybody else below those tiers. I am absolutely with you. So the Lightning Round podcast, and Jamie doesn't even have to say anything about it. 
Number one is Brian Dable. We talked about him. Number two is Brandon Staley. They are one, two, the lightning round podcast picks. If they pick Staley and not Dable, I'm still very happy. Vice versa, I'm very happy. Same, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I have zero complaints whatsoever, really with anybody on my list, but particularly with Dayball and Staley. I feel yeah. like those two guys in particular are head and shoulders above everybody else, and I feel like you're catching lightning in a bottle with, one, with either one of those guys. Yes, and I think... Staley is not a constellation prize. I think it is 1A, 1B with Staley and Dable. I really do think you could interchange these guys depending on the day and what part you look at because they are both very good, and I think they're both going to make really, really good head coaches. So that's going to do it, guys. Extra long podcast. We did it. We got through it. Number one, Brian Dable. Number two, Brandon Staley. Or 1A, 1B. That's who you got to remember during this process. They get the lightning round podcast stamp of approval. And you know how important that is to everybody, including everybody. everybody. Yeah, of course, not just players, but followers and people, listeners and everybody else. If we like you, that means something very, very special. And if you're listening to this podcast, we like you. So you're special. Thanks for sticking with us. I am at Garrisisti on Twitter, Jamie at lightning underscore round and we will see you next time thanks everybody